So in our series on following Jesus, or follow me, question mark, in Mark, this is the passage you don't want to get <laughs> on the rotation, the passage of the rich young man. It's because I think by almost any standard, I myself would be considered wealthy, although I'm slightly relieved to see it's addressed to a young man, so it doesn't really apply to me. No, I'm afraid it does. We come really actually to the only unsuccessful call passage in Mark. You know, at the end, the rich young man walks away grieved, deciding he cannot follow Jesus after all, though Jesus has asked him to. And it's one of the most disturbing and complex passages in the Gospels, and it's in more than one. It raises a number of questions. When the rich young man comes and asks what he must do, what else he must do to inherit eternal life, does that mean eternal life comes on the basis of our doing? Jesus does not contradict him at that moment. Another question, why does Jesus demand so much from him when he has not done so from many others? Another question, are the wealthy singled out in the Gospels or by Jesus as those nearly inherently disqualified for the kingdom of God, harder to go through a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God? Is Jesus calling for some kind of sweeping economic reform, the redistribution of wealth in asking the rich young man to sell all he has and give to the poor? And probably most pertinent, our question is, does this command to the rich young man, is it a special case or does it apply to us? So we approach this passage perhaps with, perhaps with some nervousness, maybe some uh, advanced guilt. But I just want to say from the start, relax. This is Jesus speaking to us. This is Jesus speaking to us. He who wants to give us life. And do we trust that? Do we trust that? Obviously, fuller scriptural answers to questions of wealth and works and economics and salvation are impossible to answer in the 25 minutes or so that we have here. So I'm going to stick pretty close to this passage and see what it teaches us about wealth and following Jesus. And if we're going to understand in what way we ourselves are connected to the rich young man, we're going to have to understand a little bit more about him, at least insofar as the passage tells us. So we're not told a whole lot. We're told that he's rich and that he's young. And that probably means he has inherited his wealth to some degree. And, of course, the fact that he uses the word inherit when talking about what he must do may tip us off as well. And most likely he inherited land because that would have been the most common way to acquire wealth because of the ways you could have others work the land and generate income. We also know he was pious or at least he thought he was pious, claiming to know the law of Moses and to have obeyed it, including, of course, the Decalogue, what we call the Ten Commandments. And he wouldn't have been alone in this perception. Uh, it was commonly believed in Palestine at that time that wealth was a sign of God's favor. Wealth was a sign of individual righteousness. It was a kind of prosperity gospel, if you will, that those who were wealthy had probably pleased God in some way, 
and of course it was clearly in the interest of the wealthy to promote this view. But by any, so by any spectator's account, they were looking at a person in this rich young man who was pious and an upstanding member of society. And you know, even the disciples kind of reflect this conventional wisdom, don't they? When Jesus tells them, well, actually, it's harder for a rich man to get through the eye of a needle, uh, harder uh, for a camel to get through the eye of a needle of a rich man, we're told that the disciples were exceedingly astonished because they had assumed the opposite. They had assumed, in fact, that the wealthy were in some way closer to God's heart. Jesus, of course, from the beginning, is a little more skeptical of that. He immediately questioned the rich young man when he comes to him with a desire to be good. He says to Jesus, what must I do, what else must I do to inherit the eternal life? And, of course, Jesus responds and says, why do you call me good? And then he cross-examines him with the last six commands of the Decalogue, the last six commandments to ask him if he's kept them. And though these are the kind of the, the, of course, the social commands. Do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, do not defraud. So he's saying, have you done these things? Well, here's where it gets interesting, though. Anyone paying attention would realize that Jesus gets it wrong. One of those commands is not like the others. Look down at the passage. Can you pick it out? One of them is not one of the Ten Commandments, or at least not one of the last six. What's missing is do not covet. What's in its place is you shall not defraud. Any Jew hearing Jesus lift off, list off those would have immediately noticed that that's a change. That's a substitution of one command for another. It would have jumped out at them. The word defraud means to cause people to suffer loss by taking away through some illicit means, through robbery, through stealing, or just denying benefits, something to those who rightly deserve them and to defraud them for the sake of one's personal gain. It's not a common word in the New Testament, but it does appear one other place, and that's in James 5, also addressed to the rich. First four verses of James 5 say, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted, moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days, and here it comes, verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers, the word there is the workers you defrauded, who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty. The King James Version says, the wages you have kept back by fraud. Jesus, with a kind of prophetic insight, in spite of the rich young man's claims to have kept all the commands, hits upon the one area of law-breaking, of hardness of heart in the rich young man's life, in which there was no faith. He was likely defrauding those who worked for him. 
It would have been a common scenario in Roman Palestine. Uh, a peasant would borrow money from a wealthy person during a period of poor harvest to sustain his life. But their debt to the wealthy person might lead to foreclosure if they had one more bad year. And this would result in the confiscation of their land to the wealthy person and the relegation of their services to tenancy, working as day laborers for the elite who had large land and holdings already. And so the listeners would have immediately understood this command about defraud and the whole constellation of images of the wealthy acquiring land, uh, land uh, falling into their hands through foreclosures, and then the likely abuse of that power over the laborers in what we might call sweatshop conditions. This would have been common. And here it might be important to say there's kind of two basic economic view of wealth and poverty. One might be the view of what's called unlimited goods. And it's probably the view we have in the wealthy West. And in the unlimited goods mentality, there are an infinite amount of goods and resources for everyone. And those who work hard can gain them. And those who are lazy do not. Of course, we know it's not quite so simple as that. In the ancient world, though, they knew essentially there was a limited number of goods, certainly a limited amount of land. Not everyone could have as much land or any land like the next person. And land, of course, was going to be the primary means of wealth. And so in spite of the glorification of rich people at that time as being somehow on God's heart, it was also widely recognized that in order to become wealthy in a limited goods economy, you likely had to do that at someone else's expense because there was simply not enough to go around. Well, Jesus has exposed the young man. He had come hoping for an endorsement from the rabbi of his own goodness. And Jesus' rather extreme command exposes his reluctance to detach himself from an unjust practice. And he walks away grieved. Did not get what he was hoping for. A sense of his own goodness. So are we to say then that Jesus is requiring perfection to be considered a follower? Is he looking at our lives and trying to find that one thing that we are failing in? Is this a kind of works righteousness? No. <laughs> it's still about faith. Jesus had a really good faith detector. He doesn't actually require us or maybe expect us to obey the law perfectly. You know what he expects? He expects us to obey him as he asks us at various moments in our lives. You see, it turns out that the rich young man trusted his own life and wealth more than Jesus. He couldn't follow Jesus because he didn't have faith in the, in the Jesus way. He did not really think 
that going Jesus' way would somehow bring life. And so he held back his means of getting life. He just, in the end, didn't trust Jesus. And it was his actions that showed how much faith he had in Jesus. Contrast this, by the way, to Zacchaeus in Luke. And in Luke, the two passages are together, the rich young man and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is also called wealthy. And when Jesus looks up and calls Zacchaeus' name, Zacchaeus even being obviously a sinner as a tax collector, Zacchaeus scampers down the sycamore fig tree. He does what the song said. I lay everything at your feet, Jesus. When Peter and Jesus and the other disciples move on after the rich young man walks away, Peter said, didn't we do the right thing? We left everything for you. And Jesus doesn't contradict them either. So again, is Jesus calling for the divestment of all wealth or the reformation of our economic structures of private ownership? Because Peter says, after all, we did the right thing. Well, this runs into problems too. Because Jesus in Mark and in the other synoptics, is not necessarily on a mission to redistribute wealth to the poor. And he doesn't, in other places, require those who follow him, like Zacchaeus or other tax collectors, to do as he's told the rich young man to do here. You know, in Mark 14, when a woman comes and uses an incredibly expensive jar of ointment and pours it on Jesus' feet, and people grumble, say, shouldn't this money be spent on the poor? Instead, Jesus says, no, that's okay. This gift is okay. And then he says, you know, the poor you always have with you. And so there doesn't seem to be a kind of uh, rich young man type prescription that is doled out regularly through Jesus, although for sure the Gospels take a very dim view of wealth and the temptations for corruption. But his response to Peter in this passage is suggestive and becomes a teaching point about wealth and the kingdom. And I want to read it again. He turns to Peter in verse 29 and says, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last, and the last first. What's striking here is the imagery of family. We know that following Jesus meant the creation of a new family. Remember in John at the cross, Jesus looks down, John the disciple, and Mary, and says, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. That evening prior on the upper room, the creation of a new family among the apostles. To become a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, is to enter a new family. And what we knew about families in the ancient Near East was that they shared their wealth with one another. The family of God is our siblings. So I don't think we can say that the prescription to the rich young man is a call on the church to poverty, 
Rather, it's a call to community. So when it comes to following Jesus and when it comes to wealth, the question is, who is your community? Who is your family? And are you willing to share what you have with others in the family? Where are their needs? Of course, the brightly shining light of this would have been Acts 2, where they had all goods in common at that moment, the height of the Holy Spirit, the willingness to give wherever they saw need in the family of God, to sit loose to our wealth, to sit loose to it, and share it as we see in our family. And, of course, that doesn't exclude those beyond it. So even though Jesus looked at compassion to the young man, it was a compassion that wanted to invite him into the family and experience the goodness of this broader life. Maybe Jesus this morning looks intently at us and continues quietly to affirm that life is not to be found by accumulating things that just encumber ourselves but it's found in being a member of the family of God and sitting loose to our wealth as we see the needs around us. So I guess my first application question this morning is, who is your family? Who is your community? And what needs do you see in the community around you? What is your willingness meter to sit loose to your wealth as you look and see your brothers and sisters and mothers around you and the needs they confront. The second application might be to look even beyond that to see how we might be complicit in systems that defraud others. You see, in the ancient world, it might have been pretty easy if you were looking for it to see how an owner defrauded laborers. There would be an obvious line in terms of wages being held back or working conditions or treatment of various other kinds. We live in a consumer society, however, where those who are producing the means want to erase the connections between us, the products we purchase, and where they come from and the people who work them. The idea is to make invisible the ties between our consumerism and those who are producing those goods. And so another call to Christians might be to be smarter than the system. (laughs) To be smarter and more ethical. To ask, given the life I'm enjoying, is there anyone somewhere along the line who might be being defrauded so I can enjoy this? It's harder for us now to do that. It's harder for us to see those connections. But there are many people, of course, who are working in the area of social justice who are helping us, helping the church see where there might be fraud somewhere along the line. And then the question comes for us, are we willing to go without something or change our habits so that they shall not be defrauded? And perhaps... The final application of a passage like this is simply, when it comes to obedience, are we willing to trust Jesus? Are we in the habit of placing ourselves before Jesus 
of listening to him, of trusting him, no matter what he should ask of us. Again, I love the song that we play this morning. Jesus, I run to you. I run to you. I lay everything at your feet. Let my life be yours. As Christians, are we in the habit of placing ourselves in front of Jesus? Remember, he doesn't expect us to keep the law perfectly. But he does expect us to obey him. Are we letting him speak to us? Are we responding? Because it turns out that our response deepens faith. As we have various choices in our lives between obeying Jesus and not obeying Jesus, this is really the choice between do you trust him or do you not trust him? In Ephesians 3, Paul prays for the Ephesians that Christ would, would dwell in their hearts through faith. Christ already dwells in their hearts through faith. But apparently this is a faith journey in which as we hear the Lord speak to us and as we respond to him, each step in that way deepens our trust of Jesus. We say, yes, I trust your way over my own. James was right to say faith without works is dead. Because every work, every act of obedience to Jesus actually deepens our faith. A faith that is not deepened by works just sits there at the same stage. It doesn't grow. And what is the reward for following Jesus? It's Jesus. <laughs> the Yerush young man walked away grieving. But he walked away from more than just a command. He walked away from a person and a community of people. The family of God. In which there are brothers and sisters and mothers. And Jesus even says houses and lands as people share with one another the gifts that God has given them. What a beautiful picture. So is that the case for you this morning? Are you taking time to open to Jesus regularly, to let him speak to you? To suggest to you how you might respond, that your faith and trust in him might be deepened. And you would, with persecutions, as Jesus says, taste life in the kingdom, in the family of God. Are you willing to sit loose to your wealth, to share? And as our psalm said this morning, to seek his face always. You know, in the moments that follow, I simply want you to start that or pick it up again. To present yourself to Jesus. Say, Jesus, take all of me. I run to you. I run to you. I lay everything at your feet. Let my life be yours.